let's look at Joseph. Um, I'm talking now about Old Testament Joseph. Um, Joseph takes up nearly 13 chapters of Genesis. And obviously in 45 minutes, we can't possibly look at that. But I want to look at eight leadership lessons from the life of Joseph. Eight leadership lessons from the life of Joseph, subtitled Living the Dream. To summarize for us, I want to take Acts chapter 7, where Stephen in his speech gives like a potted summary of God's dealings with the people of Israel. And he gives the story of Joseph in a few verses. And I thought rather than read 13 chapters of Genesis, it was kind of simpler to read Stephen's summary. So let's read this, Acts 7 verse 9 to 10. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God, say, but God. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. The thing I love about Joseph, here's a man at the age of 17, he had a dream. He went through a 13-year horrendous preparation time, then suddenly, overnight, experienced an incredible dramatic promotion. He ends up, in effect, prime minister of the most powerful nation of his day. But this is what I love about Joseph. For the next 80 years, he stayed at the top. We see no moral failure. We see no financial scandal. We don't see relational breakdown. What we see is a man who not only made it or broke through in God, he stayed through until his his dying day and he finished well. So we can study Solomon and we can look at how he started out well and ended up doing badly at the end. The thing I love about Joseph inspires me, not just for breakthrough, but I don't know about you, I want to finish well. So let's, let's look then at some of these principles. The first principle that I learned from Joseph, and I want to apply to us as leaders. You know, you can look at Joseph as a type of the church, a Joseph company. We could look at him as a type of a marketplace leader. We could look at him um, as an inspiration to individual believers. But I want to look at him today, to us here, primarily in church leadership. What can we learn from him? Number one, and it's this. If we want to live the dream, not just dream the dream, we need to honor our history in God. Does that sound familiar from what we hear earlier on? Honor your history in God. What you need to see is that Joseph was a new man for a new day. But he doesn't suddenly come in isolation. If you look in Acts 7, Joseph comes in between Abraham and the, the patriarchs and Moses and the Exodus. As if Stephen is, is, is pointing out Joseph as a transitional character. How do you know that God's got a call on your life? I hope you do. But if we want to fulfill our individual call, and if you like, make our mark in the time zone that God has placed us on the earth, we need to understand we have a great history that predates us, and if Jesus tarries, we'll go, we'll go beyond us. It's very interesting to me that when we see the Joseph account in Genesis 37, this is how it reads. And I thought it, was, it must have been a mistranslation when I first read it. It says, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, 
a young man of 17 was tending his flocks with his brothers. And as I thought, I said, so what are we talking about? Are we talking about Jacob? Are we talking about Joseph? I don't know if you've heard a kind of message, Moses is dead, rise Joshua. Have you ever heard that kind of message? It's this idea that if we are going to be new breed leaders, if we're going to break through, old, old, old stuff has gone, it's a new day. Can I say I think that's a dangerous half-truth? The thing I love here is that what we see here is not a Moses is dead, Joshua arise, you know, get out everyone over 50 and, you know, make way for the new boys. Forget about our history. Forget about Pentecost. You know, we're into a new thing. Here we have, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph. And then we have nearly about sort of eight chapters of Joseph. But have you know that Jacob doesn't disappear off the scene? In fact, the end of Genesis, I'm, I'm talking to people who know the Bible, yeah, so I can jump in big picture stuff. End of Genesis, the focus comes back. Do you know who the central character of the last chapters of Genesis is, apart from the very last maybe 20 verses? It's Jacob. So is this the story of Joseph or is it the story of Jacob? Yes. And so what I want to paint for you is rather than this generational split, it's kind of like John's point one and point three mixed together. God is into generations. God is into honor. Honor your history in God. If we want to be a Joseph generation and see God do a new thing, and how do you know we desperately need a new thing? We're not going to get there by dissing our past. We need to honor our history in God. Can I say we need to honor, if you like, the Jacob generation, if we're going to be a Joseph generation? I stand here as some something of a church historian. I am profoundly grateful for some of the history that we have in this nation over the last 500 years. I'm so grateful that we had a reformation in the UK that France and Spain and others missed out on. I'm so grateful for the Whitfield, who I spent a lot of years of my life studying, and a Wesley. But do you know what I'm also grateful for? I'm grateful for the early Pentecostals. I'm not by denomination a Pentecostal. I'm not sure I've ever been in an AOG church in my life. But I am totally up for Pentecostal theology and practice, small p. And I want to say, kind of if I can, represent it. Thank you to the pioneers. Thank you to those of you in this room who pioneered, pioneered the way in the things of the Spirit. In all the new day and the new thing and the new thinking, don't despise your history. Honor your history in God. As I came in here and we started worshipping, I'm kind of a bit of a, uh, what's that, a fanatic for the presence of God. Wherever I sense God's there, I thought, yeah, come on, Lord. And I just sense the presence of God here, and I just thought, it's almost like the Lord's allowed me today to come back to an old well. And I, I'm, this is not a disparagement on anyone's age here. I'm talking about old as in something that is rich in history. Honor your history in God. I've had the privilege in the last six months of spending personal time 
with four leading apostolic leaders in this country, all of whom are going through transition issues. They're, they're needing to pass the baton on. They're needing to raise up a next generation. But I believe it's vital when we talk about transition that we try and work to a Jacob-Joseph model where there's an intermingling and it's J- Jacob seems to have um, t- t- takes a step back and then Joseph comes to the fore and he's the man and then later on it's like suddenly no Joseph's there serving dad and dad's back prophesying and over sons and grandsons there's still a role for Jacob even in a, in a, in a new day I, I'm a what was a long a long suffering Manchester City supporter I'm now a much blessed Manchester City supporter but I noticed when Mark Hughes got sacked, sorry if you're not into football, um, but literally, in came Mancini, everything went in a week. Backroom staff, everything. It was like, you know, the king is dead, Mark Hughes is gone, long live Mancini, and everyone just forgot about him. And, you know, that is not a way that, and, and many companies today work like that, and I want to tell you, in church circles, we mustn't adopt a worldly mindset where we dishonor one generation. I think there's something about a legacy in God that there's an intermingling. There's Jacob and Joseph working together. And can I say just while we're here, and I don't want to get into an inappropriate honoring, as John said, but I think it's appropriate that we honor John for being here. But in the process, why don't we just give the Lord thanks and praise for the heritage that is here in the AOG in terms of the things of the Spirit. So why don't we just thank God for John, but in the process, let's honor the Lord. Let's give the Lord just a mighty applause here for all that he's done. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the gifts of the Spirit, Lord. Thank you for the things of God, Lord. Thank you for this rich well. Spring up, O well, afresh in this place. Amen. So that's the first thing. Honor your history in God. Turn to the person next to you, give them a high five and say, let's honor our history together. But the second thing is, we do need to dream new dreams in God. So it's not that we can't live in the past. We need to honor our history. We do need to realize this is a new day. God is doing a new thing and we need to hear the sound of heaven And be responsive to what he's doing. How do you know that constant change does need to be here to stay? Talks about this young guy, Joseph. He's 17. It says, Joseph had a dream. Genesis 37 verse 5. And then it says, then he had another dream. (laughs) Now, can I say, unlike Joseph's Technicolor dream coat. How many of you have seen the musical? Any dream won't do. Because in God, it has to be a dream from God. I think there's a wrong dimension of faith teaching that says you've just got to visualize it and conceptualize it, and it'll be yours. I don't want to visualize and conceptualize anything, because it may end up being the wrong thing. But I do believe there's something about dreaming a dream from God for the future that is incredibly powerful. I remember years ago... um, when we started out with our nine people in our living room and 
And I started just sensing God stirring my heart for something. And I remember listening to Yong Yi Cho talking about visions and dreams. That was a Korean accent in case you missed it. You could do that better than I could. He says, I, have, I had a vision. <laughs> and he started talking about God showing him almost like a faith picture of what God wanted to do in and through his life. And Dave alluded to it. And thank you for picking up on that. But I believe if we are going to be people who don't get stuck in our past and stuck where we are, and we continue to see what... You see, I I have a knowing on the inside that our future is better than our past because I've seen it. And you see, the issue is not, right, which conference have I got to go to? Which is the latest method? Is it seeker? Is it seller? Is it purpose-driven? Is it Hillsong? Is it Paul Scanlon? Is it, you know, and we, we try and be someone else and do, do what others are doing. And I want to, that stuff doesn't work. Because God wants us to learn from others, but God likes you. That's the way he made you. So it's not about you trying to fix things. I never tried to kind of take something off the shelf and say, let's try that. I've, I, I have an insatiable appetite to learn from others. I was sitting there taking notes this morning. But I believe it's, it's vital that we internalize what God is saying through others, but that we get a vision from God for what he wants to do in and through us. And so, again, Dave kind of preached my message for me there. But the very first word I ever had before we even moved to Peterborough was this. God says, think big or you'll limit me. Now you can take that one or two ways. Well, it's not about size, agreed. But it is about lost souls. It is about, it is time in the UK that we broke a small-minded perspective that while size and everything, and God calls people with different gifts and whatever, but somehow we need to go beyond where we are because how many of you know there's a vast, vast, vast number of people in our nation right now, if Jesus came back and the world was to cease as we know it, they would be destined to a lost eternity. So we've got to think big. And I started getting a vision for where God wanted to take us. You say, well, that's great, start of the ministry, but I'm, I've been in ministry for 10 years, you say, or I've been in ministry for 30 years. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I don't have to be prophetic to know there's many ministers around in the UK today. They feel stuck. Back to that, the very first scripture we had read at the beginning, they feel like there's no fruit. Can I tell you, I don't believe that God is the author of barrenness. You say, well, it's, it's tough out there, but the, the, the key to growth is not out there, it's in here. It starts in here. It starts with a knowing. It starts with a seeing. It starts with a gift of faith. It starts with God imparting something on the inside of you ahead of where you are right now. You've got to see it before you see it. It's the principle of faith, isn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence, where's the evidence in here by the Spirit, of things not, and I like to add in, yet seen. So what if you've been involved in ministry and you're sensing a little bit of a kind of a, a dead-end kind of cul-de-sac experience? Well, we've been going for about 
20 years and about two, three years ago, had a word from somebody come in, it's actually Steve Thomas from Oxford, and he says, the Lord says you're at half time. And I felt it was time to go away and seek the Lord again. So I took my first ever summer study break, which I now do every summer, which is a few Sundays I don't preach and try not to be involved in the office and just go away. The very first day of this five, six week summer study break, I was driving down the West Country to, to go on a retreat. And God gave me a whole new vision for the second half. And it included other cities. It included next step here into Cambridge. It included stuff. But I know that I know that. You see, it doesn't matter how far you've gone. Do you know, if I did not have a vision for the future, even with all the great things that God has done, and I'm so grateful for what God has done, do you know, something would die in my soul if I didn't have a future vision. How many are satisfied with where you are? I hope not. I think there's a right sense that God wants us to dream ahead. Amen. So number one, we've got to honor our history in God. But number two, we've got to dream new dreams from God. And can I say, that may come just God suddenly lands it on you while you're just walking the dog or whatever. But it may, for some of you, this may be the word you need to hear. It's time to go and set some time aside and seek God again. Say, well, I'm too busy. If you're too busy to seek God, then I can tell you, you're running on fleshly activity and not on the fresh oil of the Spirit. It's a change your priorities. Nothing is of a higher priority than hearing from God. Again, back to Yongi Cho. Haven't heard him for years, but had a real... He said, someone asked him, you know, when he had, you know, a church of half a million, something crazy like that. Somebody says, how have you managed to build what you've done? And he said this, he said, "It's, it's simple. He said, I pray. And I obey. I pray. And what's he saying? To him, prayer is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. Can I say, learn from others. Learn what God is doing. But you will not fulfill what God has called you unless you operate in daily fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of the day, last time I looked, it was Jesus building his church. Amen. It's not methods. It's not smart things. Yes, you can, through positioning and learning wisdom, whatever, you can, you can accentuate what God is doing. But unless you are on track with God, I want to tell you, you can labor all night long and you won't see anything. It's the Lord who builds the house. So I try and pray and obey. Number three then. So we, we, we need to dream new dreams. But number three, this. How do you know that having a dream and a vision is only the start? How many of you experienced there's often a time lag, sometimes a very long time lag, between dream conception, and by dream, I'm not talking about night dreamness, I'm, I'm using dream, visions and dreams interchangeably. Seeing something, hearing from God. How many you know there's often a time lag and can be a painful one from the time you get the vision through until its fulfillment? And so number three, what we need to do is we need to embrace the preparation of God. We need to embrace the preparation of God. Do you know how long it took Joseph from the time he had the vision to when he really saw the breakthrough? Thirteen years. Moses had 40 years. 
You know that, don't you? Moses had 40 years in the desert. Because they were in the personal tutelage of Jesus, the disciples' preparation was down to three and a half years. I heard somebody say, I'll take the disciples' route. But the thing is, you see, God knows when we're ready. I just wish I could rush it. You know, I wish I wish you could just have vision, manifestation. <laughs> I don't even know it's vision, preparation, <laughs> manifestation. And so we need to learn that the problem is, I think sometimes we never get off this, this point because we don't listen to the Lord and allow him to do what he wants to do in our lives. How do you know the Lord can't always trust us with he wants, what he wants to do in and through us? And I think there was something glorious. It was painful, something glorious about Joseph's 13-year preparation phase. I remember years ago, I don't know if any of you were involved in the whole kind of sort of the, the, what do they call it, the Father's Blessing or the Toronto thing, and there was some good in that, and there was some, you know, a little bit of dross. But bottom line, I think God was in that whole kind of trying to stir up the body of Christ. And I remember in one of those kind of meetings, a guy from New Frontiers, actually, a guy called Dave Devonish, came, came and he prophesied over me. He said, God says, the greater the call, the more radical the surgery. Boom. How do you know that was not the word I was looking for? But it happens to be the truth. And so what we learn from Joseph is God preparing him and making him ready for what he was to walk into. It says in Psalm 105, verse 79, God sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass till the word of the Lord proved him true. I can't say, I don't think we've all got to say, well, we've all got to go through tough times and it's all woe. And I, I often say, I think there's an easy way and a hard way. The easy way is pray and obey. Sometimes I think we go through things because we're not listening. But nonetheless, Joseph went through a pretty rigorous training program. I, I, I summarize the three tests that Joseph passed. Number one, and I, I, the, these in of themselves are a whole message, but let me just headline them. Number one, Joseph, in his preparation, passed the forgiveness test. How many think Joseph just may have had opportunity to get a bad attitude and feel resentful about what had happened to him? I mean, think about it. He gets sold into slavery by his own brothers, nearly killed. He then goes... He starts doing God's will, and he gets falsely accused of a rape charge, and as a result, spends 13 years, yeah, nearly 13 years, in an Egyptian prison. I want to tell you, even today, an Egyptian prison wouldn't be nice. But I want to tell you, in those days, this was not a, you know, this was not a five-star Hilton. This was grim. Do you think he just may have had an opportunity? to feel bitter or resentful, even towards God, maybe. I think perhaps one of the number one things that kills the people of God in terms of not their eternal salvation, in terms of their destiny, is unresolved attitudes to do with things that other people have done to them. 
And it may be right now, for some of you, the reason for your lack of fruitfulness is because you got bitterness because of what's happened to you. In, I think it's Hebrews, it talks about not allowing a bitter root to come up and basically, if I'm paraphrasing now, choke the grace of God. How many want grace? I'm not talking about for salvation. How many know grace empowers us to do what God wants us to do? How many want God's grace or God's favor to operate freely in your life, unhindered? But how many of you know along the way, if you've been involved in ministry for more than probably five weeks, how many know that there can be an ox along the way? I remember years ago when I had just taken over a small church in Oxford. It was the first church I'd ever been involved in, and it was only, you know, it was only there for about a year or two. And um, I preached, and you know, I was only a young student at the time. And I remember some, some guy came up and basically just lay into me, tell me all that I was doing wrong. And do you know he was probably right? I probably didn't have a clue. But I went out of that meeting with a serious offense. And I remember going round, and we, we, we went round Blenheim Palace, which is a big sort of um, country estate with a great walk around. And I went round that estate, and I was kind of like, talking to my wife, you know, kind of verbally rehearsing this, this offense. I'm sure you've never done it. You know, and I was going over and over, and I was so verbally bitter. How, what right? The Lord spoke to me from Joseph. And he used this phrase, and I think I probably heard it in a preach or whatever. Joseph did not allow his offenses to become his stumbling block, but instead he allowed them to become his stepping stone. How do you know that somehow, and as John has already said, I do not believe that God is the author of evil, but somehow God allowed and certainly used what Joseph went through to get him right where he needed him to be. So there and then in a hurry, I forgave that guy. And along the way, I've use a principle. I keep really, really short accounts. Because my experience, when we walk in forgiveness, God's grace flows unhindered. And then, of course, he's in prison, and then, you know, he interprets the, the dreams of two guys, and one of the Charlies forgets him. You know, he says, he says to the, um, the two guys, you know, when you get before Pharaoh, Remember me. What does it say? It says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then it's almost as if Joseph was transcribing this personally in his diary. When two full years had passed. Two more years in prison because one guy. How many of you have ever been overlooked? Maybe you thought you should have got the promotion. Maybe you should. Don't let that stuff get on. the. If, if you've got issues of offense and unforgiveness, Deal with them today. Set you free. So he passed the forgiveness test. Secondly, he passed the faithfulness test. This was possibly even more dangerous. Here he is. He's alone. He's away from his family. No one would know if he had a little fling on the side. And here this, we don't know, but she's certainly a powerful, seductive lady. Mrs. Potiphar turns up and basically has a full-on kind of sexual assault on him. I mean, this was not subtle. This was come to bed with me. There was no, you know, no hidden innuendos there. Here he is. He's, he's away. He would have been late teens probably. All his hormones were fully working. And here he gets a full-on assault. How do you think the devil may have been trying to trip up this man who had a dream? 
And I'm sure I can see enough seniority around this room to know we've all seen the tragedy. And I'm sure you've seen it in your own ranks of men of God who's, who had a dream. They had a call. And they failed the faithfulness test. I, I'm In the chapter I'm doing on this thing on how to deal with sexual temp- temptation, I've got eight points on dealing with sexual temptation. But I want to just give you one three-letter word. Run. <laughs> Run. That's what Joseph did. It says... It says, when she came at him... He ran. Some people say, well, I'm praying about it. No, pray pray and run at the same time. If you get a Mrs. Potiphar, either through the internet or in your office or whatever, just run. But listen to, the, listen to Joseph. Here he is, a guy before the law, on his own in an Egyptian culture. And then when she comes at him, this is what he says, Genesis 39, 90. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And sin against God. What revelation. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. How do you know that's a whole message? But I just want to sew that in. Run from sexual temptation. Pass the faithfulness test. But then thirdly, and I think this can be a real tough one, the third test that Joseph passed was the fruitfulness test, and it was this. He learned to prosper before he got the breakthrough. How many of you ever get yourself caught in the, the sort of one day, someday syndrome? How many, look at, how many of you love revival to break out in this nation? It just becomes a lot, whole lot easier to see people wander Christ. But we must learn to prosper now in this culture at this time with all that negative stuff that's going on in, our, in the heart of our nation. Now is the day for God to move. You may fit in a confined place. Learn to prosper now. Don't wait for a big break. <laughs> if God's not moving, mo- you know, move the hand of God. Actually, God's always moving. And so here we see Joseph. He learned, where did he first learn to succeed? Not when he first went before Pharaoh. He learned it as a slave. And he learned it as a prisoner. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered, where? In the house of his Egyptian master. Then it says, while Joseph was there in the prison, while he was where? In the prison, the Lord was with him and gave him success, whatever he did. You may feel right now that you are in a a confined place. You say, well, I haven't got the right leaders. I haven't got enough leaders. Anyone here got enough leaders? Please come and pray for me. I haven't got enough money. Anyone got too much money? Come and, no? No, we've got to learn to prosper now. If you like, in a confined place, learn to be faithful where you are. And please don't let's have this, well, if only you were ministering when I was, where I was ministering. You know, hard place. No, no, no. God can turn any hard place into a fruitful, fertile land. Amen? So, we've got to embrace the preparation of God, pass the tests. These are just three. Forgiveness, fruitfulness, faithfulness. Number four. We may not get to number eight. Number four. 
expect the favor of God. Turn to the person next to you and say that. Expect the favor of God. It says in Acts 7, but God was with him. So he goes through all this, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor. I love that word, favor, before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Don't you think that was a pretty stunning turnaround? One day, here he is. He's a Hebrew slave in darkest dungeon. Then within hours, he's, he's dressed up, washed up, shaved up in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh basically says, right, come and run Egypt for me. I don't think that qualifies for favor. And I think there's a danger, you see, because I'm talking now on a national church level, we've been in a, relatively speaking, a more dungeon state. For the, How many know that the church over the last 20, 30 years has generally been declining? I think it's bottoming out, praise God. I think there's, gonna, I think there's a tide turning. But I think as Brits, we, we've learned something about our sort of stoic nature. I think we're quite good at enduring. We're quite good at dealing with trials. But I don't think we're quite so good at expecting favor. Can I say, expect God to bless you. Expect God's favor to go before you. And I've learned a little key, and I don't know how it works, but the more I expect God to move, the more he does. God can turn impossible situations around. We heard about an uh, amazing turnaround uh, just from the gentleman earlier on. When we were looking for land in Peterborough, we originally went for a six-acre site. Cut a long story short, we we went through all kinds of planning, whatever. Uh, We spent a lot of money, a lot of time, energy. We prayed around the site. You know, we cast it in, cast it out, did everything we knew, knew what to do. And we came before the, the planning committee, and cut a long story short, we lost it on a 4-3. And I came out of that place, and I was all ready to rebuke the devil, and the Lord basically said, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. So this is me. So I got up to the congregation, and I said, right, guys, we're not going to badmouth the council, because we're called to honor them anyway. People were saying, well, the Sikhs have got there. I said, I'm not interested in the Sikhs. God is going to come through. Cut a long story short, um, we realized that we just weren't going to get through on this site. So somebody else came up with another site that was over 12 acres, and it was a better location, nice tree belt, and it was double the size, double for trouble. We went back to planning, and we won it 9-0. And in the middle of it, we had intervention from the top person in the council who basically got the planners and said, change planning restrictions. I want this church to be built in this city. Favor. In the natural, we should never have got it. But God can turn things around. Expect the favor of God. You may feel like you've been in a dungeon. You may feel like you've been in a a confined place. Can I come? I've come here to stir you up and say, believe God again. Expect for favor. 
And then when you get the favor, number five, oh, we're doing well, we're moving on quick. When you get the favor, realize that God isn't necessarily going to bypass you. He wants to do things through you. If you want to live the dream, you need to exercise the gifts that God has given you. Can I say, I think sometimes in charismatic Pentecostal circles, we can get a little bit kind of sort of out there and kind of we're so into a sovereign move of God, we think God's just going to dollop something on us in spite of us. Normal way God's works is this. He gives us gifts and he uses by his spirit the gifts that he's called, he's deposited in us to bring the breakthrough. And that's exactly what happened Joseph. How did God suddenly promote Joseph? Well, it says God also gave Joseph not only favor, but what did he do? He gave him unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. So God gave him wisdom, but guess what? Joseph had to use the wisdom God had given him. My question is, what was the unusual wisdom that God gave Joseph? Real question, shout it out. What, what do you think was the wisdom that God gave him? You know the story? Can't hear you. Interpreting dreams? Fantastic. And that's half the answer. Let me explain. Yeah? Storing the grain, yeah? Okay, we're, we're kind of on to something here. First thing that God undoubtedly used, he gave Joseph, clearly Joseph was a dreamer. He had a prophetic gift, right? He's seen dreams in his early ministry. But if I was Joseph and I was in prison, how do you know that he may have thought, well, you know, when a guy comes up and says, I've had a dream, can you interpret for me? He may have said, forget that. Last time I had a dream, it got me in a lot of trouble. But he doesn't despise the gift God has given him. And he faithfully, on the, basically on the button, he interprets the dreams of the two guys in prison. In effect, that brings him before Pharaoh. And then boldly but humbly, giving all the glory to God, he again exercises that prophetic gift. And that gift brings him before Pharaoh. But that was not the full picture. If Joseph had just used what we think is the spiritual gift, the prophetic gift, he may have then been included amongst Pharaoh's magicians. Yeah? That would have been cool, better than being in prison, wouldn't it? But how did Joseph end up being prime minister? Because he didn't just use what we would count as a spiritual gift, the prophetic, although that was pivotal to getting him there. He used a secondary, or a not a secondary, he used another dimension of gifting, which was pragmatic, which was a leadership wisdom gift. So not what was it that impressed Pharaoh? Yes, it was the dream interpretation, but it was this, and this is where I think many, many churches and leaders are missing it. What impressed the Pharaoh and his officials? The plan. The plan. I was in a church a few years ago, church that had got to about 400, good church. And I started talking about that if you're going to get from a few hundred to a church of a thousand, one of the things you need is management. 
And one of the elders' wives said, management, now that's a new word for us. And she was absolutely serious. Now, can I affirm, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit as we, in, as we understand them. But I think we limit God when we call a prophetic gift a gift of the Spirit. And we talk about the wisdom to put together a plan for the running of the government, somehow unspiritual. We need both married together. It's one thing to have a vision. It's even one thing to have heard from God. But if you are going to break through where you are and take beyond, some of it just comes down to him. We think it's not, we think it's just common sense. No, it's God's gift. God wants to give you wisdom for administration, for planning. Because if you are going to build anything beyond a certain size, you must, must plan things. Right now, we have over a thousand volunteers serving on a Sunday, adult volunteers. If we were just like, well, all turn up, let's all just praise the Lord and have a go. I'm talking about teams that are organized, teams that know their rotors, teams that, are, that have leaders, teams that know systems. And, and it's not unspiritual, it's facilitating the work of the Spirit. And when you're talking about, you see, I, I really do believe that for some of us, it's not that God's holding out, it's that we wouldn't know what to do with more people if God gave them to us. I'm only here for a short while, so I might as well tell it you straight. And we need to wise up and wake up. Then it's more than just prophecy. Much as we need to value that gift. I've already talked about honoring our history. We must understand the churches and ministries that are breaking through somehow manage to keep the, 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 the dynamic and the spontaneity of the miraculous and the things of the Spirit but at the same time hold intention the need to plan, the need to, be, the need to be wise, the need to think about good financial systems. It's not quite as exciting, but it's equally necessary. And then the third thing I noticed from Joseph is he worked jolly hard. But listen to this for a little summary. Joseph traveled throughout all Egypt. Joseph collected all the food. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain. Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. All the countries came to buy grain from Joseph. Now, I don't believe Joseph was a one-man band, literally doing it all himself. How do you know that delegation is smart? I actually do very little in our church. I just have a great team around and lots of people to delegate to. But nonetheless, how do you know, if we are going to see breakthrough, we've got to work hard. I know that may not be good news on a very hot and sweaty Saturday, <laughs> but it's the truth. So here we have Joseph. So this man who God sovereignly used, it wasn't, in one sense, it looks totally supernatural and totally out there. You know, why would God just dollop? Because here's a guy who God had, who had responded to a dream, who had allowed God to prepare him, and by the way, had learned leadership in the dungeon and in, and in the, the house of his Egyptian master. So in one sense, it wasn't a bolt out of the blue. I think sometimes we're looking at, you know, waiting for the breakthrough moment. And I do believe God gives those breakthrough mo moments. But I also believe there's a process that goes on before the breakthrough. And if we want to keep on in the breakthrough, we need to keep honoring the process. How do you love suddenly is when God just... Pshaw. But God is also the God of the process. He's the God of prophecy and he's the God of the plan. Amen. If we're going to live the dream, we've got to exercise the gifts 
that God has given us. Number six, when we get favor, when we get breakthrough, when God starts using us, what have we got to do? Number six, we've got to remember the purpose of God. Why is it that God wants to bless you? When Joseph starts out, I think his dream was a lot to do with Joseph feeling proud that he was going to be elevated above his brothers. I think there's something in all of us. I mean, you know, how much we want to humble ourselves before the Lord. How do you know that pride can lurk around very easily? And there's something in of our ego we, we like to do well because it makes us feel good. I don't think that's totally wrong, but bottom line, very often we can think we want to do great things because we validate ourselves by how well we're doing rather than by being sons and daughters of the living God. And that's another whole message. But by the time Joseph is lifted before Pharaoh, the work of preparation in his character has been so significant that he is able to handle both incredible influence and incredible affluence without it ruining him. I mean, he's basically given Pharaoh's personal credit card. He's in charge of the running of the greatest empire of the day. How do you think if he had a pride problem, he was, was going to mess up right there and then? But Joseph knew why God had exalted him. And can I say, now's the time where we need to settle. How do you love to see God turn things around in, in your life, in your church, in this part of the region? Don't we, we want to see breakthrough, don't we? We want to see breakthrough in our nation. So what's the purpose of God? Joseph knew what the purpose of God. Joseph knew that Joseph hadn't been lifted up for Joseph's sake. Listen to this. Genesis 45 verse 5. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Five chapters later at the end of his life. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Saving a many lives. Some of you are probably aware that we had a, a kind of moment of quite extraordinary favor about this time last year. Um, we got approached by the BBC to go do a live Pentecost service. And in the process, they were going to do some songs of praise recordings. And to be honest, we don't even record our own services. So we, we're not like, you know, media savvy and all the rest of it. So we thought, well, okay, Lord, if that's what you're saying, we'll do it. Cut a long story short, we did that live Pentecost service. Now I'm talking about I was able to preach live on BBC One without any restrictions. I was able to take an altar call on, on like, you know, will you join while I um, include people at home who are going to pray along with me. Let's pray this prayer, the sinner's prayer. We're talking about baptisms going on. I think it's the first time on terrestrial, full-on baptisms. And um, the night before the, 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 the actual live service, the, the, the top producer had, had put a request in. And so one of my team said, there's something you've got to change. And I'm like, oh, no, he's going to tell me I can't take up the altar call. And he says, you, you used, an used an illustration. You were referring to Britain's Got Talent. And because it's an ITV program, they don't want you to mention it because it's the BBC. <laughs> and I thought, if that's all they want out, thank you, Lord. Anyway, kind of long story short, with some fear and trepidation, it was just one of those moments, second song we were singing, part of me was like, you know, you've got to get it down to the second. I mean, everything's got it. You know, you're going out live across, any, anything goes wrong. 
But in that second song, as we were just singing, it was like the Holy Spirit just came on me. It was like boldness. <laughs> the end of that hour, we went out. Within seconds, we had unsaved family friends texting saying, my mum's just prayed the prayer. My, my sister's just been crying the thing. BBC cameraman crying and, and people not knowing what, what had happened to them. Months on, we are still getting testimonies. I was in Belfast at a church plant of a church in Belfast in a place called Antrim. With about 170 people, I had two people coming up. This was months later. One guy said, thank you so much. He said, that, that program said we recorded it. And now we watch it two to three times a week. And... Um, my daughter's new favorite game is baptizing her dolls. <laughs> it's like from one program. Then I had another guy in that same meeting. This is kind of more serious. Say, I want to really thank you. Our daughter was away from God. She was at home while we were at church. We came back from church to find her crying. She'd given her life back to the Lord. And that Sunday, she was there on the Sunday morning service in the main church. Hallelujah. I, I could tell you story after story after story of how God used one simple little program that we weren't probably, we had no experience for or whatever. But this is, I got this email in from a guy in Ludlow, Shropshire. He says, I'm now 84 and have not been to church for years since my wife died 11 years ago. I lost interest completely, but tonight I felt reborn. For the first time in many, many years, found myself singing with your community with a loud voice. I felt so happy for once in an otherwise lonely life. And I think, God, what, what am I saying all this? I'm saying that program hasn't particularly grown our church. We have seen a few people come in. I do know from talking to church leaders around the nation, it's done a lot of kind of good in breaking people's minds. Oh, and I've forgotten we had the little thing of Monday morning after a certain Radio 1 DJ called Chris Moyles, who I'd never heard of, who has an audience of 7 to 8 million waxing lyrical because this was church like he'd never seen. And you get literally 7 to 8 million of our young adults suddenly. So we had all round people, you know, our young people going to, going to school and suddenly it was cool to go to church. So as I say to church leaders, we did that hard work and all the rest of you can benefit from it. But my serious point is this. Why did God do that? For the purpose of saving many lives. Why I'm expecting more favor? Because we've only done a tiny fraction of the job. And I want to just emphasize what John said. We mustn't get in a numbers game. It's not, I don't compare. We must, that's not what it's about. It's together. We have a massive job, friends. The vast majority of this city, of Peterborough, of Norwich, of wherever you come from, the vast majority don't know their right hand from their left. Make mission and saving souls the absolute priority agenda. And if we have to change what we do while honoring our history to adopt new practices and styles and whatever to reach more lost people, I'm up for it. I'm not going to violate and throw out what God has done in us. I'm not going to tear up our spiritual roots but if we have to do things to be more accessible and understandable to where people are at, let's go for it. Because last time I looked, 
we've been commissioned by the master himself. We must remember the purpose of God. Two final things and then I'm done. You might think that's it. Here he is, lifted up to the most important place of, you know, and, and I, when I used to read the Genesis account, I mean, here he is, he's been brought Pharaoh, and then you have about another, I think it's about eight chapters. I'm like, it's kind of like, you know, a story that peaked too early. Then we get a long kind of three chapters, cha- chapters 42 to four, right through to actually the middle of chapter 45. It seems to be just a long, boring account of him and his brothers and him tricking them and them going back to dad and famine and coming back. I thought, what's all that about? You know, we've had about 10 verses on him overcoming temptation. About a chapter or two in him becoming head of Egypt. And then we've got three and a half chapters talking about him and his family and how they're I thought, why all that emphasis in the scripture? I'll tell you why the emphasis. Because as important it is to change a nation. It's one thing we must do. And this is what Joseph did. We've got to guard our unity in God. Guard your relationships in God. And as if in all the midst of this... God's story has not been done for Joseph because although he has fulfilled a part of the dream, there are some brothers who are still there who if they don't get reconciled to Joseph are never going to become the 12 tribes and see the fulfillment of God, yeah? So can I say, it's not about just you being blessed or me being blessed. It's about the whole people of God in this nation getting blessed together. And it's not just about your ministry, it's about your team. And as John's already said, it's about us serving the people because God works through unity. Even right to the end of his dying day, you see Joseph, he's still in right, he's honoring his dad. He's in right relationship with his brothers, despite what they've done to him. And he's even in good relationship still with Pharaoh. I think that's a pretty great example. Do you know tragedy is? I'm sure John's seen it far more than I have. You have ministries all across the body of Christ that are, quote, successful, but there's collateral relational damage all over the place. And I, for one, say, I'm not, I don't want to go there. One of the greatest miracles that I think we've experienced a number of years ago, I'm talking about when the church was several hundred, so we're not talking about just two people there. A lady came up to me and she said, I've been in this church for two years and I've never ever heard anybody say anything negative about you, Karen, or the leadership of this church. And I thought that is the greatest sign and wonder I've ever heard. We're in a charismatic church. (laughs) Now, I'm not naive enough to think that over those two years, nobody had said or thought anything negative or that we're doing everything right. My point is... There was something of a culture of honor and a freedom from gossip. I say to new members when they come in, I said, if you've come from a church where there's gossip, before you come in, park it outside the door because you're not bringing it in here in Jesus' name. But you know, it starts at the top. I recently had a, a good friend of mine and we got into one of these kind of conversations and he starts talking about other ministries and whatever. And, and I thought... I started feeling grieved on the inside. I should have been sharper. I should have there and then done, shut it down. But I rung up the next day and said, I was uncomfortable. I said, I can't say for you, but I felt there was something about our conversation that I didn't feel was pleasing to the Lord. I don't know, I don't know where, where his, you know, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, 
And I said, I'm just on such a tight lead with this stuff. Such a tight rein. The Holy Spirit's just got me on set that I know that if I start speaking out against other leaders or ministries, it's like something gets grieved. I want an ungrieved spirit in my life. How about you? Guard your, and can I say unity starts in your family, in your team, in your local church. It does mean being united as a fellowship of churches and not allowing the Lord to fragment and getting into little camps and what about this and we don't like that and we're off here and blah, blah, blah. God can't bless that. Cut it out. Sort it out. Is the AOG perfect? I'm sure it's not. Is your family the family you were born in? Was it perfect? No, but that's, that's your roots. Honor them. Doesn't mean you can't discuss issues and wrestle with things, but do it together. Have a cabinet collective responsibility. If necessarily, vigorously disagree in the cabinet meeting, but then go out and together we're one. And then I think there's something else is doing, and I want to honor it, and that's part of the reason I'm here. I think God is doing wonderful work across denominations of streams in this bigger thing called the kingdom of God. Let's honor one another. And then finally, say finally, we've got to finish well in God. How do we do that? I love this. Writer the Hebrews goes through the big patriarchs of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, he picks out one funny little detail about Joseph's life. Now, if I was him, I'd have thought, here's a guy, dreamed a big dream, saw it come to pass, rescued Egypt, you know, resisted temptation. What does the writer of the Hebrews pick up on? By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his bones. Isn't that amazing? Of all he could have picked. Joseph's bones. And I haven't got time to unpack this, but bottom line, I think what that says is that Joseph's, in the same way that he dreamed a dream at the beginning of his life, was still looking forward beyond his lifetime. Hallelujah. Can I tell you, your, your life legacy doesn't stop and doesn't need to stop the minute you die and go to be with the Lord. Amen. I can tell you, we can raise up sons and daughters in the faith. We can believe for, a, you know, you may be praying for revival and never see it. And you may but pr- keep praying for us, please, because somewhere, someday, the promises of God are going to come and we're going to see an exodus in this land and we're going to enter the promised land. Joseph kept believing beyond his life and he left a legacy in Jesus' name.